Tēnā koutou, no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tang. Today, the cost of living and inflation is fast becoming a political flashpoint. And this morning, banks are warning things could get a whole lot tougher for Kiwi households. Then, we'll share a novel solution to the housing crisis from someone who's actually built a lot of houses. Plus, who'd want a civil union in 2022? I'm in Wellington with the surprising figures which reveal just who's getting them. Yeah, we'll have that fascinating story for you shortly. But we begin this morning with something completely different. Cast your mind back for a moment. Three and a half weeks to the 1st of March. It was a busy news day. The protest at Parliament was dragging on. Ukraine had just been invaded. And Dame Valerie Adams announced her retirement. Oh, and also, this happened. The facts are undeniable. This abdication of leadership is criminal. The world's biggest polluters are guilty of arson on our only home. Huh. That was United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres reacting to the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, to be honest, the report kind of died in the global news media. In the midst of a crisis news cycle, the astonishingly grim prognosis from the IPCC was drowned out by war in Europe and the pandemic. But as the world burns, the world burns. Right now, the Arctic and Antarctic are experiencing extraordinarily high temperatures. In one part of Antarctica, temperatures reached 47 degrees higher than usual for this time of year. 47 degrees. We went to our resident meteorologist, Dan Corbett, and asked him to put that sort of heat in perspective. This is literally off the scale. This is looking at, obviously, the globe, and we're talking about temperature anomalies, so temperatures that are warmer than normal. And yeah, one thing that jumps right out at you is look at the red, but when you look at this scale here, this is in Celsius, it goes from 3 to 10, where it gets to red, 20. When you're getting to this white color here, that is off the scale. 30 is the top end at white, and it is even a, dark, you know, a brighter, brighter white. Off the scale there for Antarctica, and also that blood red, and you know, that really bright red color color there for the Arctic, all showing the areas where it's much, much warmer than normal because of those warm surges that spread north and spread south. I can remember some 30-odd years ago learning in university that, say, in 30 years' time, we will see extreme weather events, warming in the poles, warming across the planet, extreme rainfall, and we're seeing it now. And to see something like this, where these temperatures in the uh, Antarctic and the Arctic are off the scale, literally, um, it is just staggering and it is frightening. I'm not sure how many times we need to repeat it, but literally off the scale can't be good given the IPCC says the world is still on track for significantly more warming in the future. Tim Naish is a professor of earth sciences at the Antarctic Research Centre at Victoria University. Kia ora, thanks for being with us on Q&A this morning. You have been studying Antarctica and its climate for a long time now. What did you think when you saw the temperatures this week? Well, Morena, Jack, and, and thanks for having me on the programme. Yes, well, I think like many um, climate scientists around the world, and particularly Antarctic scientists, we were shocked. I mean, we were on notice. That was, um, you know, I live in Wellington, and, uh, you know, when a southerly comes through, we can get a 10-degree temperature swing. But to see 40 degrees over the polar region, over Antarctica, was, was quite something. Um, yeah, unprecedented. Hasn't been seen before in those temperature records and could be the 
the, it, it could be the canary in the coal mine of things to come. Certainly not unexpected. I mean, we know the polar regions are warming. We expect the Antarctic to, um, to, to respond like the Arctic is right now. And perhaps this is, you know, the first sign um, mm. that, that things are beginning to change. So what actually caused it? Well, you know, when I talk to my colleagues and people like James Renwick at Victoria University, um, it, it's pretty clear that this is a, an, atmos an extreme atmospheric event. It's a source of moisture um, that has come from South Australia and ultimately from, from the subtropics in, in what they call an atmospheric river. So, you know, we've had this, this, this plume of warm, moist air come south and penetrate well into East Antarctica, one of the coldest places on Earth. Is it directly attributable to climate change? Yeah, well, that's the question, of course, we always get asked. And we're always a little bit careful. You know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. Um, so we, we, we like to see a trend. But as, as we all well know, we're seeing in extreme events happening with much more frequency um, around the world, wildfires, droughts, floods. Um, and this is an extreme event that we've seen on the background of climate change in Antarctica. So yes, of course, we would expect more to come um, as the, the world is warming. And these are the things that the models, mm -hmm. these are the things that our paleoclimate data tell us um, you know, that uh, we're, we're in store for. Tim, we, we have seen some significant warming in the past in the Arctic, but as you mentioned, this is the first time this sort of event has occurred in the Antarctic. What will be the impact? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's probably too soon to say. And, you know, we, as you say, we've seen some dramatic changes in the Arctic, and our models suggest that the Antarctic always follows a little bit behind, um, and that's largely because, you know, Antarctica is a big ice block, mm. and if it all melted, right, we would get 60, well, 50 odd, 50 to 60 metres of sea level rise. Um, but up until now, it's been relatively protected by the deep, cold Southern Ocean. Um, so to, to see this sort of atmospheric event um, is, is quite a surprise. And I guess your listeners will be also aware that just the other day, as a consequence of this, an ice shelf about the size of Los Angeles disintegrated just on the coast downhill from where those weather observations were taken. So this, this ice shelf had been, um, had been melting slowly from ocean warming for the last mm. decade or so. But it, it, it was done in by this atmospheric event. So, you know, if, if we were to get this sort of atmospheric event over West Antarctica, um, which is a lot, a lot warmer, we would have seen a lot more response um, yeah. than we've seen. Fortunately, it happened in a very cold place. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose that's, that's an interesting point, isn't it? And this will come across as a really dumb question. But, I mean, 47 degrees is significant. But if it's still below zero, then isn't the ice still frozen? Well, exactly. That's, we have to put that in context. You know, this, this part of Antarctica is high. It's above two kilometres. And it's usually about 60 degrees Celsius at, at this time of year. So a 40 degree increase, it's still pretty cold up there. Mm. Things are not going to melt, melt straight away. So, 
But, it, but as I was, as I, I guess I was saying, is that there are other parts of Antarctica that are a lot warmer, and if you got a 40 degree increase there, um, you, there would be some serious consequences. If these sorts of temperature anomalies start happening more often, say every year or every few years, what will be the bigger impact? Well, the bigger impact is the ice starts melting. And up until now, um, you know, this is one of the biggest questions that um, climate scientists are dealing with. How quickly will Antarctica melt and contribute to global sea level rise? Up until now, most of the action we've seen is through ocean warming. So as I said, the Southern Ocean mm. uh, surrounds Antarctica and the ice sheet and, and the ice sheet has been getting warm and we've seen parts of it start to melt at an accelerating rate. Um, but this is, you know, this is a different game. Once we see surface warming of this magnitude, things could happen a, a lot quicker. And that's really what we've been looking for signs of. When will we start to see a really strong human footprint or fingerprint from global warming. And I think, you know, we're starting to see it. There's a number of mm. things that are happening around Antarctica at the moment that have got the scientific community going, you know, have we pulled the trigger? Are you talking about tipping points? Because going through that IPCC report, it was interesting to note the IPCC made clear some warming, climate warming, is irreversible. It's effectively locked in from our position right now. But is there a tipping point when it comes to Antarctica and the role that Antarctica will play in global warming? That's, that, that's a really great, great question, and we, we, absolutely there is. Um, we think that tipping point is around about 1.5 to 2 degrees of global warming above pre-industrial levels. Um, but, you know, science is not... Yeah, there's some uncertainty around that. But, um, yeah, the expectation is, and we know this from both computer modelling and from um, drilling into the past, the expectation is that 2 degrees of global warming is, is enough to get rid of the ice shelves that, that surround Antarctica and essentially hold the ice sheet intact. And so, you know, the Paris Agreement of 1.5 degrees mm. or below 2 degrees and with an aspiration of 1.5 degrees is not an arbitrary number. It's based on some of the science around these tipping points. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of incentive there not to go past 2 degrees. Um, if we can achieve the Paris target, we can potentially prevent the Antarctic ice sheet from significant meltdown. Mm. You have been travelling to Antarctica for your studies for, for many years. Have you personally observed changes yeah. on the ground? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I've had 15 trips down there and, you know, there are things that, you know, just just things that hit you straight away. I, I You know, when you didn't often see open water outside Scott Base in the middle of summer. Now we see orcas um, outside Scott Base, which is lovely. We used to land in big US military cargo planes on the sea ice, on the frozen ocean outside mm. McMurdo Sound. We can no longer do that. That, that ice is not viable. We now land on the, the ice shelf, the solid ice, and we can't even land on that in the height of summer. We have to have a no-fly period because you simply can't land a wheeled aircraft. So we're seeing dramatic changes in the Ross Sea region. And when you're seeing change in the Ross Sea region, you've, you start to worry because it's mm. considered to be more stable than, say, the Antarctic Peninsula and West Antarctica. Mm. You, you heard in the introduction to this yeah. piece the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, lashing world leaders. 
Take the scientist hat off for a moment, just if you can for us, Tim. Is there anything about our species response to climate change so far that gives you any sense or any faith that we have the capacity to act with the speed and at the scale required to avert this disaster? Yeah, that's the, usually the uh, dinner party conversation killer. But um, look, to be honest, the science says there's still time. We can still do it. The pace and scale of change is huge, as you say. But, you know, we're seeing right now how the world can get in behind a major military conflict in the Ukraine. We've seen how the world can join together to address a global crisis like COVID. Um, it's very frustrating as a scientist to know that this is a, a global crisis um, that we could solve and, and we, are, we are dealing with. My fear is, even though you add up all the pledges at, in the latest um, uh, COP meeting, the pledges um, towards global warming, you know, we could land at about two and a half degrees centigrade, close to two degrees, if we really got stuck in. And that requires leadership, as Antonio Guterres said, that requires leadership at the top to really enable that, that, that pace of change. So as a scientist, we're getting increasingly frustrated. Um, I, I haven't given up hope. Uh, it's not an either or. It's not a like you fail if you don't achieve the Paris target. Um, if you land very close to it, that's better than the alternative mm. of four or five degrees of global warming by the end of the century in a planet we simply can't live on. Thank you very much for your time. We Sorry, really... it's a bit depressing. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, no, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, yeah, we'll try and cling on to that. Yes, we're sticking with the uplifting topics on Q&A this morning. After the break, we will share ominous warnings from Kiwi banks that could make your budget a whole lot tighter and how it's likely to affect our policy debate. Hoki maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. Stuck between a rock and a hard place. That's what ANZ says the Reserve Bank is right now. As in the face of rising inflation, it considers significant increases to interest rates. For the average Kiwi household, both options are bad. ASB reckons higher prices and higher debt servicing costs could increase weekly household outgoings by $150 a week this year. Woof. Emmeline Pickering-Martin is an academic and writer. Fran O'Sullivan is NZME's Head of Business and they're with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Emmeline, I will start with you. The cost of living is already putting massive pressure on households. What are you seeing? Kia ora, Jack. Morena. Um, so we're seeing on the ground lots of whanau who are, having, who are really struggling day to day, having to reassess how they're spending within their households um, and reallocating that money and essentially the kind of last thing to go is food. So we're having lots and lots of whanau who are um, not eating, uh, not eating appropriately and accessing food banks and the like. So yeah, it's um, very concerning for us. Yeah, Fran, Fran, what's interesting about this is that it cuts across a massive slab of households. So not just the poorest New Zealanders are being affected, and particularly if interest rates rise, we could see a lot more middle-class families being affected as well. Yeah, and you're quite right about that, Jack, because people, particularly people who are in the mortgage belt who have bought into their homes over the last few years where the value has skyrocketed and they will feel an interest rate hike 
hugely. Uh, but on top of that, it's rising energy costs, uh, there's transport, um, you know, it's, it's the electric power bill, it's a whole range of things, plus the cost of goods imported from overseas. Uh, you've got shipping costs bringing um, goods down to New Zealand. And just going by your last uh, speaker, also climate costs, because some of these extreme weather events are having a major impact on food production as well. And they're only going to continue to do so, aren't they? I mean, hip pocket issues, Fran, are always significant in the, in the lead-up to an election. We're 18 months or so from the, from the next election. But how do you think the cost of living pressures are going to play into that campaign? I think they're already playing into it because we've already seen the National Party come out with its tax policies uncosted and some of them quite inaccurate uh, with the comments of the leader at when the top rate kicks in. So, you know, you've got that happening already. They see a wedge there to uh, drive against the Labour Party. But I think the important thing is if you look, you know, outside of New Zealand, the UK, the US, many places are facing absolutely the same spiral. It's almost intractable. How do you bring it down? You've had central banks pump up economies, essentially, over mm. the last uh, couple of years with the COVID pandemic. And now you've got to unwind that back, but unwind at a time when you've got all sorts of new pressures like the Ukraine and also pressures around climate change. I don't think this is an easy one. No, the Reserve Bank obviously has to take some responsibility for our approach when it comes to uh, the OCR and interest rates, Emmeline. But what else would you like to see happen from a policy perspective? Well, I guess from I'm a, a I'm policy perspective, we'd like to... Oh. Sorry, Emmeline, you go first, and then I'll come to you, Fran. OK, cool. Um, we'd like to see more money given to those you know, at kind of the bottom end of our pay scales, if you would like. Um, we know that they need it the most. And I don't know, the kind of gap that we're seeing now is really, really, really widening. It's not just, um, you know, middle class New Zealand and top kind of New Zealand and then everyone else that's living below the poverty line. We're seeing middle class New Zealand now recognising the struggles that, uh, you know, the lower end of our socioeconomic scale have been seeing for years and have been talking about for years. And because middle New Zealand is starting to see that, um, we're kind of looking at policy now where we want more. Um, we want more for with working for families. We want more in terms of helping our families be able to afford the basics. Um, the $20 a week rise that's coming into effect soon is going to do nothing if we're looking at what ASB have said with $150 extra a week. Um, we really need to think about, you know, putting some freezes on pro uh, food costs maybe, cutting that GST like Te Pāti Māori have asked. Um, you know, freezing things like, I, I know we've talked about rent caps before, but honestly, um, at this point, what what can we do? We have to start thinking about people who are really getting driven further into poverty. Fran, what do you think? Well, I think, you know, if you're an office worker and your company elects to continue flexible working, I would say keep those transport costs down by continuing to work from home. Um, I would say put public transport totally free. Government might have to subsidise that, but it also works well from the point of view of the carbon equation. So I, I think there's some big moves. Um, if you're talking about being in the city, a report came out from Peter Gluckman, uh, talking about creating this place, Auckland, as a park city. I would say turn some of it into gardens, you know, pack up part of the domain and other places and put food co-ops in. Uh, we've been through periods of strife before on cost of livings, and at that time, perhaps New Zealanders who were more anchored in their communities mm. uh, did do things like create food cooperatives. They actually 
bypassed the supermarkets and went direct to wholesale suppliers and um, just, you know, shared out the food, people put in, in the money, that type of thing. I mean, if you buy in bulk, you actually can reduce costs, but you need to be, um, you need to be able to leverage up with a group of people to do that. And obviously you've got the food banks, but I think... My sense is we are going to need more, build more of a sense of community. Um, I do, you know, as Emmeline was saying, I do think there also needs to be uh, more assistance uh, via working for families. But also there's some very big costs like childcare that people are paying for. Um, can we be creative? Can we be using um, halls at schools to, to have uh, children in during the day? Can we actually start to do things, particularly after school care, mm -hmm. so that people can go uh, to work being quite secure, uh, that their kids are safe and that big cost comes down a bit. So I think it's sort of like rethinking a lot of what we do. Emmeline, the food co-op uh, idea is something that you'd mm. be interested in as well. Yeah, there's a beautiful one running in South Auckland at the moment called Kiwi Kai um, with the Whenua Warriors. They've, they're making it work, you know, big boxes of fruit and veggies for $15 a week. Um, people coming in with dairy, supporting them that way. Mm. Uh, there's meat and all sorts of things available through there. And so we can see that it's working. So why not, you know, um, put some resource into that and look at other ways, like Fran was saying, alternative ways of coming together as a community. We know there are community initiatives that are already working. And we know that people are out there doing the mahi. It's just thinking outside of the kind of square policy box that we always thought of um, in a very different time with very different uh, kind of financial issues and worldwide issues. Um, but there's definitely, definitely room to resource co-ops. And, you know, um, Auckland Action Against Poverty have always, have always said we need to lift benefit um, to living wage standards. So I think that would be like a really great first step if we're looking at helping our most vulnerable. So ASB reckons the average household might face uh, weekly outgoing increases of $150 a year. But Fran, what will be the impact on businesses, either through higher debt servicing costs or the impact of inflation over the next few months? Yeah, and we're already seeing that uh, through businesses. And, uh, and But there's also critical shortages. If you look, for instance, um, New Zealand's been on a home renovation boom uh, since people have been locked down or not going anywhere, particularly not taking offshore holidays. And so they've been um, attending to their houses, but now you find you can't get um, jib board, for instance. Mm. And I think what we do need to see is more push out of the Commerce Commission uh, to uh, ensure we actually do get more competition, particularly at the supermarkets, but not just there. This is a nation full of duopolies and, in some cases, monopolies. And that needs to be busted, frankly, uh, to get prices down. It's going to be very hard for some businesses, however, because people are going to be, um, particularly retailers, people are going to be more careful with their money and with their disposable income because they won't have much of it mm. uh, in some cases. So we're going to see, um, you know, the pressure go on retailers' margins. Uh, we're going to see what happens to cafe culture, for instance. Will it actually even come back when the pandemic... Uh, you know, drop, drops away a bit, or people are actually going to be so focused on their own bottom lines that they're going to be um, deciding we can go without that, for instance. Yeah, this is a curious time. It's likely to be a tough few months. We really appreciate your input this morning. It's Fran O'Sullivan and Emmeline Pickering-Martin. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can find us on email or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Next, what would you say? If your beloved took a knee right now and asked you 
for a civil union. He said, if I believed in marriage, I would marry you. Mm. That's what he said. Mm. But why else are couples still choosing civil unions over marriage? Kia ora, te whanau. Welcome back to Q&A. The fight to allow civil unions in New Zealand was fierce and revealed divisions in our national psyche. But since marriage equality was passed in 2013, what's the point in a civil union? Almost two decades since the unions were first introduced, Connor Sterling investigates who's still choosing the option dubbed a stepping stone to marriage equality. The New Zealand of much of the last century was a decidedly unpleasant environment for many in the rainbow community. You're back into the sewers! Homosexuality was still illegal, homophobic sentiment was rife, and getting married or having your relationship recognised in law was off the table. It meant couples like John Jolliffe and Des Smith, who've now been together for well over 30 years, were on the outer. We'd been to a stage where we knew that we had wheels that wills that could be challenged and perhaps challenged effectively in some cases in hospital care the significant other of a gay couple <coughs> was not able to visit their partner so when the possibility of civil unions a legal recognition of a relationship whether gay straight or otherwise was gaining momentum in the early 2000s they were there it was tuesday evening used to go to parliament tim barnett worked uh who was putting the bill through, said, like, Tuesdays, that's when we have a meeting. And so we, it was a sort of like a meeting of people interested in doing it. Debate on the issue spilled into the streets. A bunch of marches both for and against the change occurred, perhaps none more notably than Destiny Church, who took to the streets to say... And then there was this... United Futures' Paul Adams is so against the civil union bill, he's going without food for three weeks, believing God will answer his prayers and stop it becoming law. But for all the debate and for all the hatred, those meetings with Tim Barnett had worked. The civil union bill was passed in early December 2004, 65 votes to 55. Des and John weren't going to wait any longer. They believe they were the first in the country to go for one. We thought, well, OK, we, we've made all this sort of noise about it. We've uh, put our names forward in public that we're interested, so let's do it. And um, we had a chat with Kerry, and we found that uh, she would be available on May the 1st in 2005. And uh, wonderful. Bingo. Dame Kerry Prendergast, Wellington's mayor at the time, was a wedding celebrant and also did Dame Fran Wilde's wedding. Certainly it was the first one in our city and it was Des and John and they were the most wonderful couple to work with. Uh, they were very clear the sorts of things they wanted and they wanted their family involved so it was a, a very special occasion. There we are. <laughs> but those special occasions are looking a little different than the early years. The total number of civil unions peaked a year after the legislation was enacted and remained steady between same and opposite sex couples right through to 2012. With same sex couples increasingly opting for marriages from 2013 on, the number of civil unions for them fell sharply. From 2014 on, opposite sex couples began outnumbering same sex couples. The gap widening in the last two years as more opposite sex couples begin to take them up. 
They're numbers which line up with what Kerry Prendergast is seeing as a celebrant. It averages about one civil union for um, five uh, opposite sex uh, weddings. And, um, but the numbers of same sex have certainly dropped off in terms of civil unions. This was the civil union licence, which is what we were signing during the ceremony itself. So um, we've got our two witnesses and ourselves in the celebrant. But then we... Valerie and James are part of that trend. Opting for a union rather than a marriage just last month in Wellington's Botanic Gardens. As Valerie told me, it all comes down to dated connotations. How did you come to the civil union idea? That was me. So I'm from Texas, which is quite conservative and quite religious. Um, and so there are definite ideas about what marriage is and who wears the pants in those relationships and things like that. So I was always a bit hesitant. Um, but when it was kind of clear, like, oh, actually, there's this kind of alternative which doesn't have as much baggage in my eyes, I was like, oh, well, that, that makes sense for me. The idea that we could start from nothing and just build in the elements that we enjoyed. If we didn't want the religious aspects, we could leave those out. Um, if we didn't want to call ourselves bride and groom, we could leave that out and pick a different word that we like. It's a similar story on the other side of town, at Lucy and Khan's place. I didn't want religion to be involved with it at all, um, and that would, that's what it would mean. It hasn't really like, done my, my family any, any service um, throughout my life. For us, the, the importance was the long-term commitment to each other, and you can call that lots of different things. And it was the fact that we were both prepared to say, Yes, let's do it. So what does the minister in charge think? I put a question to Jan Tanetti. There's going to always be people who uh, will prefer a legal recognition outside of marriage and civil unions suit them in that respect. There's no plan to change or amend the legislation. We like the fact that people have choice. They can choose whether they want to have uh, recognised their relationship recognised as a marriage or they can also have the same legal recognition through a civil union. So we want to see people have that choice and we think that the, the law as it stands at the moment is good. And that's something Des and John agree on. They've since converted their civil union to marriage and say it'd be wrong to change or remove an option which they see as a stepping stone to full marriage equality. The people are taking it up, they must be, they feel a need for it and uh, something special to them. Connor Sterling with that report. Just a reminder, we also publish our programme each week as a podcast. It's in all the usual places, just search for NZQ&A. After the break, a potential solution to the housing crisis from someone who's built houses in one of New Zealand's most beautiful neighbourhoods. In many ways, Ngāti Mubler defines modern Māori leadership. As the Deputy Chair of the Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke Trust, he's played a central role in building his hapū's asset base, using the commercial successes to help nurture his people. He and I met on his Tūranga Waiwai, overlooking Ōkahu Bay, Rangitoto and the glorious Waitamata. And I asked him where he's from. Nōhi Aukui. Nō Ngāti Whātua Hau. Despite my Ngāti Pro sounding name, uh, my great-grandmother named me. She's from Pōtō Tūrio Hau. However, I grew up in uh, Te Awaroa in the South Kaipara uh, with our people there around Helensville. 
Uh, then I moved here to this beautiful Papakainga with our Ngāti Whātua ki Tāmaki people and uh, here in the Orake village. And been here ever since, although um, I'm positioned out on our western borders out in Waitakere. We're here at Takaparafau, Bastion Point, perhaps the most beautiful part of Auckland. You were just a toddler during the occupation here. Do you remember anything? Yeah, my, my only memory, I must have been three going on four, um, was coming to my great-grandfather's house down here. He, Pirini uh, Rewiti, um, he was one of the elders, I guess, put in the, uh, labelled as a conservative. He was, uh, with other elders of his generation, were negotiating with the government of the time uh, for some of the land to be returned um, before the occupation, uh, during and after. So I just remember being at his house and being shooed away because Piggy Muldoon was coming um, and uh, got to eat a lot of the cakes out the back of the house with uh, some, of the, some of the hard case uncles. That's my only memory. Piggy Muldoon, you remember, Piggy Muldoon, that, you remember, remember that, that name? Piggy Muldoon. Yeah, when we were kids, it was, it was what everyone called him. Well, yeah. How do you think that occupation has influenced you as a leader? Uh, well, that occupation was looking back and listening to stories from um, the different families involved uh, was momentous and huge, um, really stressful as well. It put a lot of strain on the people, the relationships here. Um, but in 1991, when the Waitangi Tribunal was created, it uh, brought our people together. So we had the conservatives with the radicals, uh, so, to, so to speak come together and present our case before the Waitangi Tribunal. And, you know, uh, it takes all different ways to, to get a result. So we had the families come together, present the story in one coherent way, emotionally, and the net result is we have uh, much of this beautiful land back in our control. But as a leader, what did it teach you? What did that resistance teach you? How do you think it has influenced you, consciously or otherwise? Oh, the perseverance of our people. So, 78, the occupation was a culmination of, you know, over 100 years of um, opposition to the loss of uh, our, our estate here in central Auckland. Um, and the petitions of various chiefs, uh, Te Kawo, to get title to this land, um, to Haere, uh, his nephew, uh, who constantly petitioned government uh, around the loss of the lands, particularly in Parnell, Tauradua. Um, and the loss of the headlands over here, Otene uh, Paura, my great-great-great-grandfather, uh, and many others, Rinata Uruwamo. And so coming through to the, the generation of um, Uncle Joe Hawke and Sir Hugh Kafaru and Mike Ramika and others, is really just a culmination um, of all of that building up to that point. And we are just another chapter, our generation, to learn from that, to be inspired uh, from it, uh, and to ensure that we stay humble and with our feet on the ground. Ngāti Whātua once owned, or at least had kaitiakiship, of 80,000 acres of land. When you were born, that had been reduced to a quarter acre urupā. What were you taught about that as a kid? Uh, yeah, well I grew up in the Kaipara, um, and so was more familiar with our land loss in those areas. Um, and land that had been wrongly taken and our parents fight in that area up there um, and then we were brought here uh, as kids um, to our great-grandparents house um, and to understand what happened here in, uh, in Tāmaki and so I guess with all of that uh, from our tribal estate right from North Kaipara through to Auckland uh, having lost the vast majority of it 
before the 1860s, before the Native Land Court was set up, um, you know, has a huge impact on uh, on us, on our generation. I mean, we grew up in in an era where it was uh, not that fashionable to be Māori. Uh, you walked around the, the streets in the town uh, feeling less than others. Um, and so, you know, for our generation, most of us uh, have committed ourselves to recover our reo, our, our stories, uh, so that our kids can learn them and take them for granted and they can walk tall uh, wherever they are in our tribal area. Were you taught about injustice though? Oh yeah, yep. Um, you see it all around us growing up. Um, I mean, my dad was a teacher, so, you know, we weren't as um, uh, worse off as other Whanaungas, but uh, seeing uh, people living in poverty um, around us, uh, being treated differently uh, in our communities, uh, but also knowing some of the stories, even as a kid, that our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our ancestors were basically the masters of the isthmus and the masters of the kaupara, uh, and within six or seven generations that being changed to being the paupers in uh, the area, uh, yeah, it has a significant impact on one. On one. In the time since, Ngāti Whātua Wārākei's fortunes have changed, and I'm careful to use the word fortunes because I know that actually you probably would suggest that fortune has nothing to do with it. Ngāti Whātua Wārākei has become the envy of iwi and hapu around Aotearoa. Back of the envelope, what do you reckon the assets are worth right now? Oh, it's um, valued at around $1.5 billion uh, currently. It's that's public, that's in uh, our annual reports. We're very transparent, Iwi, about how we manage our, our finances. But, um, you know, I, I still say we're only getting back to where we were at, at 1840. As I said, we were masters of the isthmus um, uh, through the 40s and 50s, 1840s and 50s. We were trading in uh, Rarotonga. We were bringing and importing mangoes and bananas. We had seven schooners uh, going across uh, the Waitamata and also the Kaipara. Um, we were, um, you know, we were practicing our rangatiratanga uh, and mana motuhake um, uh, whilst working with our new friends and new settlers. Uh, but that all changed in the 1860s and we've been fighting our way back ever since. But really, um, we only have a, uh, you know, a small fraction of what's needed to um, repair the damage of the last seven generations. What is needed? Um, well, we need the economic um, strength to be able to stand on our own two feet um, and where the government and council policy programs fail us and they continue to fail us and we all know that in education, health, um, environment, everywhere, uh, we can invest ourselves in the things that, that need to be invested in uh, without uh, going through endless meetings and bureaucracy <laughs> talking to, um, to, to our uh, treaty partners. You are talking about sovereignty, you're talking about Tino Rangatiratai? Yeah, this is our form here in, um, in the city. Um, you know, it's pretty hard to practice that uh, with 1.7 million people on our doorstep, but um, uh, we are uh, inching our way back uh, to that um, standing on our own two feet, and uh, I'm absolutely certain in a couple of generations we'll get there. Just paint me a picture of what that looks like. In, in two or three generations, when you're, when you're tamariki are your age, say, what will the world in which they're operating look like? Uh, well, our, our babies now, um, they will all be, uh, they'll be 
you know, creatively inputting into uh, this rohe of theirs, this takiwa uh, here in Auckland uh, and right through the, the tribal area. Um, they'll be well educated, be able to participate in both worlds, um, but mostly they'll have their reo. They'll have their pūrāko, they'll have their whakapapa. That's something that the last three generations, four generations have been robbed of. Um, that's the key, key difference. Um, uh, and those are the investments that we're making now, particularly in our culture and our language programs. Do you feel like Aotearoa wide, there has been a shift in the last few years, that there is a renewed sense of energy around um, the revitalisation of Te Reo Māori and the participation of people in Te Ao Māori? Yeah, it's been huge. Um, so much so that many Māori can't get places on Te Reo courses now because they're filled by <laughs> Pākehā. Yeah. Um, but that's a, that's a healthy problem to have. Um, yeah, and so I definitely we see and feel that as Ngāti Whātua people across the isthmus as we uh, undertake our civic duties, you know, in schools, opening buildings, uh, visiting different uh, corporates, large and small, welcoming in migrants uh, as well. Uh, we see people, there's a real thirst uh, for our culture, uh, but none more so in our own people. So, um, you know, as a result of um, COVID, we've actually had a, a massive upswing and uptake in our cultural programs here uh, in the village. So we get nearly 200 people now online for our um, Te Reo courses. Yeah. Why is that? I think COVID, um, you know, changed uh, a lot of things for the better, uh, particularly that first wave. I think people wanted a deeper connection. Everyone got to slow down and stop. Uh, they connected with the environment. Uh, they got out there, they saw fish that they didn't see, they noticed insects they hadn't seen before, um, but then people wanted to connect emotionally and spiritually, so we had a lot of people reaching out uh, to us and we were ready for them. Uh, it kind of felt like a tide had turned. Finally, our people were ready, um, you know, to learn the language and, and reconnect with themselves. Sort of was an opportunity for people to reckon with the things that mattered, right? It was an opportunity to hit pause in life and go, actually, what are my values? Yeah, totally. Uh, and um, it's kind of waning a bit now. <laughs> so <laughs> with all of the, uh, you know, the lockdowns and so on, uh, there is a bit of weariness, but um, we haven't seen that in, around our culture. People are um, more and more uh, are connecting. And uh, yeah, now we say to our whanau, look, if you, don't, if you miss a couple of classes, we have lots of other people who live here who, are, you know, they're all knocking on the door. They want to they wanna join our classes now. So, yeah. yeah. What else do you think um, the, the Uruta Whanui, the, the pandemic, has illustrated about the status of Māori in New Zealand? Uh, yeah, I think um, Manakitanga, I think uh, our Pākehā friends saw how Māori quickly swung into action. We didn't wait for uh, the government bureaucracy to move. We right across from uh, small and villages through to you know, large entities swung into action, uh, looking after kaumātua, cooking kai and distributing uh, out to those, those in need. Uh, and we see that in, um, you know, when there's natural disasters, how, how quickly a, a marae, despite everything they've been put through by the local community, the local council and different government departments are always ready uh, with the doors open, firstly to look after their own and then to see what they can do for the, for the wider community. In a minute, co-governance. Hey, our Q&A. Q&A will be back after the break.
Tēnā koutou, welcome back. The ACT Party told One News this week that a referendum on Māori co-governance would be a bottom line in forming a future government. And the subject is shaping up as a central debate ahead of next year's election. What do you think of the shift towards more of a co-governance model in New Zealand? We've been co-governing this beautiful piece of land now since 1991. Um, we even own the beach down there uh, below at Okahu Bay. We're on a balmy summer's uh, afternoon. We'll get a thousand people sunbathing on a Māori-owned beach. We own it in uh, Taitu, we own it in here, um, and we co-govern it with our um, Auckland City Council uh, brothers and sisters. And um, I don't think there's anything to fear in that. We've brought um, our values to the table, um, and now we have over a million native trees planted across, across this landscape. That wouldn't have happened if, if not for us. Um, and we still uh, have it for public uh, enjoyment and access as well. The government's three waters proposal faces a lot of opposition from New Zealanders, and a large part of that opposition stems from Māori co-governance, a framework for Māori co-governance over those water assets. So what would be your message to New Zealanders who feel anxious about Māori having that kind of governance status over those assets? I think there's more of a genuine concern, and rightly so, around um, the perceived, and I'd say perceived, loss of assets and control by local communities. Uh, but at the end of the day, all Kiwis will, will own them still, um, and they will be protected from uh, private sale and privatisation. So there's that. The other part around co-governance, I can just say, well, look at our track record as, as Māori in every part of the country. Māori opened the doors um, for settlement. Um, our example is, you know, the city uh, behind us, which we JV'd uh, the, with the crown on, made available uh, thousands of acres of, of land for settlement, housed, fed um, the settlers. Uh, we didn't do too well out of that deal in the last six generations. And when we came back to the table uh, to settle all of that, uh, we humbly settled for two cents in the dollar, where most Kiwis uh, know these settlements are worth a hell of a lot more. Um, and, you know, out of those settlements from the 90s, we've had co-governance here on this land, as I've mentioned before. Uh, the Waikato people, you know, with their huge losses, you know, at the, at the point of uh, a gun, um, when they settled for the river um, and the loss of control of that and its, and its pollution, um, that is co-governed um, and they are working in partnership. So we have all of these examples uh, that we can point to, um, but, you know, I guess that's part of our our great, uh, our great uh, opportunity, I'd have to call it, as, as New Zealanders, is to understand our history a bit better and uh, remove some of those fears. Um, you know, so we've got a bit of work to do as, as New Zealanders still. Over the last few years, uh, you and the council have clashed at times over what iwi or hapu should have mana whenua status in Tāmaki. Think of the likes of uh, Waikato Tainui, um, that claim mana whenua status of some parts of Tāmaki. What do you think the council gets wrong? Um, yeah, so the council and Crown, uh, um, you know, they kick this stuff for touch. On the one hand, uh, they say they don't determine who mana whenua are or who holds the mana. However, they do certain deals, uh, land transactions, uh, and acknowledgements that um, uh, in effect acknowledges that some other iwi may have the mana of the whenua of a particular area. So that's an ongoing 
issue that we've had with the Crown uh, in recent times and our, our council. But, um, you know, every, just about every Māori knows um, when you go to an area, it's pretty obvious who the, the, the home people are. They're the ones with the a marae, with a papakainga, uh, with a kura kaupapa, with a urupa, uh, with the, the waka, uh, and people who are moving across uh, their lands um, and still performing the duties of, of their grandparents and great-grandparents. And uh, for Auckland, we are the tangata whenua. We are the ones that do that. No matter how many uh, meetings council and the Crown uh, invite these uh, these others to. What's your relationship with Waikato Tainui like at the moment? Oh, we have um, uh, good whanaungatanga um, with Waikato Tainui. Uh, we're working through uh, their recent claim over here <laughs> in, in the central city. Uh, we believe there are some nuances uh, in that that we can work through um, where they will recognise that we are the, the hokaianga, the ahika, and hold the mana. Uh, but we in turn can recognise also some of their connections uh, uh, to the place. And that's all we have been trying to um, work through with other iwi, like we've done that with Ngāti Pāwa. Um, you know, they recognise us here now as the mana whenua and rec recognise, yep, they did camp in areas uh, around here as well. Do you worry that Ngāti Whātua is losing mana and tamaki? No, we'll never lose uh, our mana. Um, how could we? Um, you know, we have... Uh, everyday expressions of our, our, our mana. I could just, you know, hear the kids laughing and crying and uh, being shouted at over there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> They're the next generation. Uh, we will never lose tāmaki. One of the things that you have achieved here is, is um, development of all sorts of different forms of housing. What do you think New Zealand gets wrong about housing at the moment? That's the land value, uh, that kills a lot. So the example here, um, we can build housing for our whanau um, because the land is put in it. I mean, it's it's priceless, right? So yeah. we don't put a price on it. Yeah. Um, so it's we're just building for uh, the cost of construction and insurance and rates. Uh, so I think there's something in that that the government should look at um, where it can leave the land in, um, and perhaps get homeowners owning the chattels and the property on top um, and passing that on through their families over time. It's like um, a leasehold situation? Yeah, we have that here, licensed to occupy. So yeah. the mana stays with uh, the people, which is us, or could be government. Uh, I don't think that's been fully explored enough yet um, outside of a Māori context. And uh, that could be a Māori solution, uh, you know, for a Kiwi problem. Yeah. When you look out at, uh, at the city, I mean, here at Tahua, it's, it's beautiful, but there's a port in the middle of it. What do you think of that view, and how would you like to see it changed? Uh, yeah, we'd like to see huge changes there. We've been pretty public about that. We think we can do much better as a city uh, and as a people uh, to turn that into a great, fantastic asset for all Aucklanders, uh, housing, uh, tourism, business, uh, and generate, you know, a lot more fun <laughs> for Auckland and and uh, income uh, for the city. Paint me the picture. Give me give me Nadimu's dream waterfront right there. <laughs> uh, well, pretty much what I said, but I'd probably throw in a, um, a rugby stadium somewhere um, there. Um, yeah, where the Warriors and the Blues uh, and the All Blacks could play, uh, and all the other codes as well. Um, but yeah, we've you know we've we've 
we've still got a bit of a grievance over that. We we may have gifted uh, that, we may have even sold some of Remueta, but um, there was never a piece of paper that said we did a deal over the over the Waitamata. So, um, you know, we at the very least would see us having a strong involvement in the future uh, management of the port and whatever, if it moves somewhere else, then, um, you know, we'd want to have a strong influence down there. Do you think it will? That's inevitable. It's just a matter of uh, when, not if, mm. yeah. With Phil Goff stepping down, local body elections later this year, do you see it happening anytime soon? Um, well, he didn't do it in the last eight years. I don't see why he would do it in the last six months. Okay, but with a new mayor, maybe? Who knows? Um, I mean, uh, Leo, I hear, is saying, uh, talking rugby stadiums and the like, so, uh, yeah, not sure. Have you had a conversation with any, with any of those candidates so far? Oh, in time, we'll, um, we'll meet with all of them, as we always do. Um, it's always important for Ngāti Whātua uh, to ensure people understand who we are and our role in the city. Um, no matter their uh, political persuasion. Have you ever considered politics? Uh, I've been in politics since I've been about 15, I think. What about iwi politics what, what, what about what about, politics. <laughs> which are probably the trickiest forms of politics, I can imagine. I think that other politics would be a lot easier, Have but probably not as much fun. No, certainly not <laughs> as much fun. Have you ever considered it? Uh, I get asked every now and then, um, you know, my name, Blair, rhymes with mayor, and some, some of my mates uh, g me up about that. But um, seriously, I've, all I've ever wanted, and many of my cousins uh, now who are, who are back home, we just want to be Ngāti Whātua. Um, and whether the council or, or uh, government listens to us, we just want to put a purely Ngāti Whātua view to the world, just as our great-granddad, granddad did, great-great-granddad did before them, uh, and, and grandmothers, uh, and put that to the... Uh, to the other side, the other treaty partner. You must feel a great sense of pride. I, I know you're not where you ultimately want to be, but the progress that Ngāti Whātua Wārake has achieved in the last 50 or 60 years, a generation, is amazing. Uh, yeah, if I take a second like that, yeah, uh, I, I guess it is. We were on the brink of complete calamity. Uh, Sir Hugh, you know, said there was a cultural genocide here in Auckland. We were ethnically cleansed from Auckland. All of our relations on our borders pushed south to the Mangatafuri. Uh, the northern tribes demonised and ourselves put under curfew. And, you know, two generations later we had a quarter of an acre. So, yeah, uh, we were put to the, pushed to the brink of uh, our very existence. So, yeah, granted, yeah, we, we can be pretty Happy, but only for a very brief time because there's so much more to do. It is Nadi Mublier. Cool, Mutu. That's Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching and Namihi Kia Koto Ingakarere. Thanks for your messages. Hey, Tera Wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9 a.m. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand on air.